Scott Elder, in praying for me, just stole my introduction to the sermon, basically. He tipped my hat, so to speak, and, um, but I'm going to use it anyway because I wrote it, and so technically it's mine. Uh, you know, I preached uh, this passage in the fir- I know it was in the first year that I was here. Because I made a reference, I went back and looked, uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 36 through 49, I looked at my old sermon, and I preached it because I made a reference to my grad work, which I finished pretty quickly after I came here. It had to be in the first year. Uh, I was doing uh, uh, some grad work at an institution in St. Louis. I made reference to that, and, I, and it was current, like it was, I was in the midst of it then. So this has to be something I preached in the first year. And this is, this is why I bring it up. It is an incredible blessing to look then at this passage again and look at that sermon and think about the timing. Timing that was not ours. It was not me as a pastor who said, you know what? We should be preaching this passage today on this day that we, we basically talk about this transition. That was not me. That wasn't Benjamin. That wasn't our staff. That wasn't our elders. We're not that smart. But this passage has a message that is so, so appropriate. For today. The, the thing that Scott stole was. I, I have said. Uh, I said the very first sermon that I preached here. A candidating sermon. And I, I said it this morning before my first sermon. It would be easy to make something of this time. That we should not make of it. The emotions. Or the thinking about people who are leaving. Or coming or whatever it is. We could easily make something of this time. We should not. But what we should make of this time. And what this passage compels us to make of this time is much of Jesus Christ. We need to open our eyes and with laser sharp focus pay attention to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the picture of Jesus Christ and his preeminence that is in this passage. We do not need to think about Jason Abbott. We do not need to think about Benjamin Berbacek. We do not need to think about the person sitting next to us in the pews. We need to focus our attention on Christ Jesus. Amen? That's what we're going to do. That's what Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, calls us to do this morning. So I'm going to pray that that's what we're going to do right now. And you're going to pray with me. And we're going to take all the distractions out of the way. And we're going to focus our attention on Jesus Christ this morning. Will you bow your heads with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, your timing is perfect. You are never surprised. You knew the day that I preached this sermon some seven years ago or so. That this would be the passage that we would come to in Luke today. And you knew we needed this message. We needed this focus. And so we thank you. Because you are good. You are sovereign. And you bless us. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ this morning that we would have a singular focus on him. Stir up your Holy Spirit in us. Teach us from this passage to focus our lives and our attention on Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let me read Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 36. I'm going to read aloud. You read along silently with me. It'll be on the screen or you can turn on your phone or you can open up to that ancient document, an actual book with pages. It's called the Bible. We're going to look at this together. Hear the word of God as it's recorded in Luke 24, beginning in verse 36. 
as they, that is the disciples, were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for it. Now what I want to do this morning is I want us to dig in to this text from God's holy word. I want to ask three questions of this text. And the first question I want to ask is what about the title? I, I entitled this passage or this, this sermon from this passage seven years ago, Jesus, our magnifying glass. I just cut it A little bit, our magnifying glass. Why the title? Because the title really is all about something incredibly important that is taught here. And we want to focus on it. So why this title? What about the title? When I was a boy, we used to visit my grandmother. She lived in Jefferson City, Missouri, where we're from, where I'm from, and Natalie now is from. And when we'd go over to visit her, she lived in this little Cape Cod house. You would walk up the steps. You'd walk into this kind of open room. She had her TV set on. She was always watching the TV, maybe The Price is Right or baseball, Major League Baseball. She was like an 83, 84-year-old woman, and she was still watching Major League Baseball. She just loved that. But she would welcome you in. And there was always an antique coffee table sitting in front of her love seat where she was seated. And on the coffee table, there was always a large print Bible. And on that large print Bible, there was always a magnifying glass sitting on top of it. The Bible and the magnifying glass always were together right there on that coffee table. They could not be separated. And as a kid, of course, I liked to play with the magnifying glass. I would magnify anything and everything. And my grandmother was gracious enough to let me do that. You can set stuff on fire with a magnifying glass, which I thought was pretty cool. Most kids would. However, as I grew older, I recognized that that magnifying glass was much more than a toy. It was way more than a toy. It was a tool. It was, in fact, the tool by which my grandmother was able to read her Bible. It was the tool that allowed her to meditate upon her salvation in Jesus Christ, to hear from the Lord as she read his holy word. 
without that magnifying glass, that book was, was closed to her in so many ways. Sometime later during my time at seminary, I recognized that what was true of my grandmother's magnifying glass, that having it was essential to her Bible reading, was similarly true of Jesus Christ in reading the Bible. Here's the point of the title. If we attempt to read our Bibles in isolation from the person and work of Jesus Christ, then we really cannot read our Bibles at all. Redemptive history will not come into focus unless we see Jesus Christ as the main character in it, as the central figure of which it all points. Like that magnifying glass, we will not understand the scriptures unless we understand the person and work of Jesus Christ, unless we understand the gospel. I think Jesus actually teaches his disciples this throughout his earthly ministry. I want, I want to show you that because I think that this is that important. So we're going to look at three different places where I think Jesus is teaching this, that he is the main character, that he is the central figure, that he is the magnifying glass by which everything else in Scripture comes alive and is, is knit together and held together. Uh, When Jesus begins his ministry, he goes into a synagogue and is given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He reads the prophecy. This is what he reads. It's not going to be on the screens. Just listen. Let this sink in. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You can go to Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, and you'll read his reading from the prophet Isaiah. But then Jesus sits down and he preaches a very short sermon. Yet, a better sermon than I've ever preached. This is what he says. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's it. That's the sermon. Jesus says that he is the fulfillment of what Isaiah predicted. He says that the prophet Isaiah was pointing to him. You want to understand Isaiah? You want to understand what he's prophesying about? Then you have to understand who I am. My person, my work. When Jesus preaches a sermon on the mount, he begins with a statement concerning the purpose of his coming as it regards the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament scripture. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's just a shorthand way of referring to the, the Old Testament scriptures. I have not come to abolish them, Jesus says, but to fulfill them. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus wasn't simply the fulfillment of what Isaiah said. It wasn't just Isaiah that was pointing to Jesus. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what the Hebrew scriptures have said they are pointing to him. He fulfills what they're prophesying about, what they're talking about. 
Or think about the two dejected disciples from last week's sermon that Benjamin preached. They're on the road to Emmaus. They unknowingly encounter the resurrected Jesus and relate to him the sad story of the crucifixion and how their hopes had been dashed because of Jesus' death. But then Jesus responds, Luke chapter 24, verse 25 through verse 27, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then Luke tells us, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus reads the scriptures and Jesus understands the scriptures according to what he has done and according to who he is. Do you want to understand the Old Testament? Do you want to understand your Bible? Then you have to understand the person and work of Jesus Christ. When you look back into your Old Testament, you have to understand who Jesus is and how he fulfills what is predicted there, what is prophesied there. If you want to understand your New Testament, it all springs out of, it emerges out of the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ. The life, death, resurrection, And as we're going to look at next week, the ascension of Jesus Christ, which says he reigns. He reigns. He is the king. If you want to understand the Bible, you have to read it through the lens of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the magnifying glass. Without him, we do not understand the Bible. We can't. Let's move to the next question. What does Jesus do in this passage that's strange? Because he does something very strange here. At least I think it's strange. And it may not immediately jump out at you when you first look at the text, but the the resurrected Christ does a very interesting and peculiar thing here. He teaches a survey of the Old Testament in order to establish his identity and, and this is important, his authority. He teaches a survey course on the Old Testament scriptures to say, this is who I am and this is why I have authority. Now, why is that strange? It's strange because he does not simply rely on the profound miracle, the miracle of the resurrection to establish his authority. I mean, I would. I think most of us would expect that that would be enough to establish your authority. This guy's back from the dead. This guy defeated death. He has authority, profound Authority. No, instead, he relies on the resurrection's fulfillment of what was previously said in the Old Testament to establish his authority. Now, wouldn't you think the miracle of the resurrection would be enough? And yet, Jesus doesn't think it's enough just simply to appear to them, does he? He thinks the resurrection goes along with the Old Testament scriptures. He grounds the resurrection and his authority in the fact that the Old Testament scriptures pointed to If you could do a miracle, even the smallest, most insignificant miracle, don't you think you'd immediately have some authority? Even bad superpowers are better than no superpowers at all, aren't they? 
I googled terrible superpowers. You would not believe how much has been written on the web about bad superpowers. There are a plethora of them listed online. Did you know? I am not making this up, by the way. Did you know there is a Marvel superhero named Squirrel Girl? Now, what is her power? You guessed it. She can control squirrels. Now, that's a pretty lame superpower. If you said, Jason, you can pick your superpower, that would probably be pretty close to the last thing on the list of superpowers that I would pick. Nevertheless, if I was able to control squirrels, I'd gain some authority in your eyes. You wouldn't ask me to verify my authority with documentation. Where was it prophesied that you'd be able to control squirrels? Then we'll listen to you. No, I would just get about 100 squirrels. They'd all look at you. You'd feel very uncomfortable. And you would give me some authority. You would listen to me. You'd do what I say. Jesus doesn't only say, look, I'm back from the grave. I've died and risen again. Now go do what I say. Instead, he teaches an Old Testament survey course on how his person and his work and his authority are established because of what scripture says. That is crazy. And it's high praise for the importance of the word of God. Believe, Jesus says. Believe because it's written in the word of God. Because I fulfill what's there. Look at the text with me, beginning in verse 44 and 45. Then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. Jesus tells his disciples the storyline of God's redemptive work from Eden to the present day. And then he connects that storyline to his life, death, resurrection, to what he has done and who he is. Jesus tells them that this is God's story and that he is the story's main character. A narrative, by the way... I. I was an English teacher once. A lot of novels I have read. A narrative, a story without a main character is no story at all. It's no good. And a main character without a story is no main character at all. Jesus grounds himself and his main characterness into the Old Testament narrative. And he says, here I am. I'm what you've been waiting for. Have you ever wondered why so many people think that Buddha, Muhammad, Jesus, or any other religious leader, you can insert your favorite religious leader now, should be able to coexist with equal authority? At least one reason that people say that is because they've taken that leader out of the narrative by which their authority is established. They divorce the leader from the narrative and then they just make the leaders say what they want to say, what the person wants to say. So Jesus says some things about love. Oh, Muhammad says some things about love. Oh, Buddha said some things about love. They must all be about love. But they've taken them away from the narrative. 
They aren't main characters without the narrative. They want the stories and the main characters in those stories to say the same thing. And so they make them say the same thing. In contrast to such relativistic history, Jesus says, this is the world's story. It's revealed in God through his scriptures, his word. It's the one true story about ultimate reality. There is no other true story about ultimate reality. And I'm the main character. I'm the hero. That's what Jesus says. Super important to see that. Think about all the narratives competing for your attention every single day. Think about all the voices telling you what to think. Ask this question the next time you hear one of those voices telling you what to think. Where do you get your authority? By what power are you telling me to think this? And also, ask yourself this question. Who am I tempted to listen to? What narrative, what story am I tempted to buy into? What leader am I tempted to follow? Jesus is putting the temptation to follow other leaders to death here. I like what Shane Stacy says. Today's social media world has turned everyone into a storyteller. Each post points to a different main character. Every photo depicts a competing storyline. But the pages of scripture tell a different story. In this story, of all stories, there is only one main character, Jesus. And God has created us to be supporting actors in his never-ending epic Tale. Who is narrating your story? Who's the main character of your life's narrative? Think about these things for just a second. Are you the hero? I can tell you that every single day that you get up, the first battle that you have to fight is the battle against yourself as hero of your own narrative. Every single day, you have to fight that. You can't be the hero. You can't be the hero. You can't be the main actor. You can't be the main character. Well, let's ask one final question here. What's the big point? We're looking at this passage in Luke. What's the big point? Well, if Jesus is the hero and truly believe he is. If the Bible is all about him, then the big point here is that we should always point to Jesus. We should always focus on Jesus. We always have to follow his leading. We can never be the main characters. I love what John the Baptist says. In uh, John chapter 3, verse 30, John says, this is my paraphrase, Jesus must increase. We must decrease. We need to make more of him and less of ourselves. He must be greater. We must be less. As we close, meditate on what Jesus says here, verse 44 to verse 48. Just meditate on this one more time with me. Here's what he says. These are 
my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms be fulfilled. Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You are to testify to these things. You are to shine the spotlight upon these things. My person, my work, Jesus says. You are to testify about that. I am the main character. Magnify me, Jesus says. Magnify my work. That's your job. Notice that Jesus opens his disciples' minds in order that they might understand the Old Testament scriptures. In order that, they might see that those scriptures taught that he had to suffer and die and rise from the dead. In order that, forgiveness might be preached to all the nations. Friends, the the scriptures testify about Jesus. In order that, we might follow and preach and magnify Where are you shining your spotlight? What's the focus in your life? Who are you magnifying during work or in your neighborhood or on social media? Is it a Bible scholar? Some intelligent Christian thinker that you think a lot of and you're hoping that they'll say what you just can't say very well? Is that who you're, you're putting the spotlight upon? Is it a Christian artist, some musician or poet or writer? Or visual artists that you think is really cool and might be winsome for your friends who aren't believers. And so you're putting the focus or the spotlight on that person. Is it a celebrity pastor, some big time Bible preacher that you think, wow, if they just heard this person preach, then they become a follower of Jesus Christ. Are you putting your spotlight there? Or as silly as it sounds, which is exactly how it should sound. Is it me? or Benjamin, or Carolyn, or Ben. That sounds silly, doesn't it? But if your focus is on me, or Benjamin, or Carolyn, or Ben, then your focus isn't on what it should be. Friends, Jesus puts that kind of misguided spotlighting to death in this passage. There is only one main character. There is only one hero. There is only one who deserves the spotlight in our lives. And it is Jesus Christ, the only true shepherd of the church of God. The only savior worth spotlighting. The only one worth following and worshiping. I love what Jesus says about the Pharisees during his earthly ministry. He sees them making disciples and he has very harsh words because he says, you are making disciples of hell. Why? Because they're making disciples of themselves. Follow my teaching. Jesus says, no. There's only one to follow. Only one. And it's me. Only Christ Jesus should be magnified. And I love 
that that's where we end because that's where we begin. There's a play on words going on here. Jesus is our magnifying glass. He magnifies and opens up the scriptures for us, doesn't he? We understand the scriptures by his life, his ministry, right? His perfect obedience to God's will for him. His death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension to heaven. We understand all the scriptures by that. That's Jesus being our magnifying glass. But when we see the scriptures truly and we understand this redemptive story well and rightly, then what must we do? We must magnify him. He magnifies and opens up the scriptures and then we magnify him and make much of him. Amen. Jesus is your shepherd. Jesus is the only shepherd of Christ's, his church. Amen. Let's pray and then we'll have one final song. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the eternal Son who put on flesh, lived among us, died in our place, and in three days picked his life up again because death could not hold him. We thank you that through faith in him we have hope and we are able to magnify him Make much of him. Put the spotlight on him. Lord, help us to do so. Help us to do so well. Help a world that needs to know about Jesus Christ and the gospel. Help them to hear through our ministry, through our magnifying of him. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.